This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Last week, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals heard the case of a man whose felony welfare fraud conviction meant he was no longer eligible to enjoy Second Amendment rights. But where does that line of thinking end? At least according to attorneys representing the government in that case, it doesn't have to. Cato's Clark Neely, something of a Second Amendment litigator himself, is watching that case closely. We spoke last week. Yeah, so this case uh, is called USV Range, R-A-N-G-E, um, and involves a, a guy named Brian Range who pleaded guilty in 1995 to um, committing welfare fraud in the state of Pennsylvania uh, because he and his wife, um, who were in desperate need of uh, food for their family, um, neglected to report on the for- form the um, income that he earned from uh, mowing yards. And so then he was uh, convicted of a state-level felony. Um, and this makes him ineligible um, to own a handgun under federal law because of a federal statute uh, called 922G. And so he um, is is essentially challenging that federal law as applied to him. What he's arguing is, look, I am a nonviolent, um, uh, you know, convict of a felony um, that wasn't, you know, doesn't really, uh, I don't want to present a risk to society. Um, And this blanket uh, policy at the federal level of disarming anybody who's been convicted of any sort of a felony uh, violates my Second Amendment right to own a gun. And that's the issue that's now before the Third Circuit Court of Appeals on bonk, meaning the entire court, because sitting as a panel like they usually do a couple of years ago, the court just brushed aside uh, his claim. Uh, but now in the wake of the Supreme Court's Bruin ruling from last June, um, the Third Circuit recognized that they have to take a fresh look at this case. Now, we will get to the sort of jaw-dropping part of the uh, oral argument in this case. But first, I want to understand the degree to which the federal government essentially outsources to state judiciaries the role of making determinations about whether or not someone is eligible to uh, take advantage of their Second Amendment right. It's remarkable. Uh, Unfortunately, the stage was set to some degree by um, the the permissive attitude that we have towards disenfranchisement. So keep in mind that it's been um, customary um, and unfortunately, in many people's eyes, unexceptionable for states to prevent people from voting who, after having been convicted of a felony. Now, some states um, uh, allow uh, convicted felons to vote and others don't, but we do have a history of essentially shrugging our shoulders at the disenfranchisement of people who've been convicted of felonies. Now, the underlying rationale, if it's not too charitable to call it that, is that, you know, sort of back in the old days, uh, all felonies were for serious and seriously antisocial crimes, things like murder um, or burning somebody's house down or serious kinds of physical and sexual assault. And so you had displayed this kind of um, antisocial behavior. And also, uh, way back in the old days, they were all capital crimes. And so the argument was, look, if we can take your life, then surely we can take away some subset of the rights that you possess, uh, whether it's the right to vote or own a gun. But of course, fast forward to today and states uh, uh, criminalize, and the federal government too, for that matter, criminalize all manner of incredibly trivial behavior, whether it's the possession of some plant that they don't want you to own, or as in this case, a minor reporting error uh, on on a government form. So as you say, in effect, what the federal government has done is that it has uh, put uh, one of your constitutional rights, the right to own a gun, at the mercy, 
in effect, of uh, state legislatures. And uh, if they you know, want to prosecute you for some incredibly harmless and trivial behavior that they happen to make a felony and they get a conviction, well, that's the end of your Second Amendment rights as far as the federal government's concerned. All right. So trivial behavior that has been turned into a felony. Let's talk about jaywalking. <laughs> yeah. So during the oral argument in front of the en banc Third Circuit uh, yesterday, one of the judges asked, uh, I think, a really fair and challenging hypothetical. And essentially what he said to the DOJ appellate lawyer was, look, what if a state made it a felony um, to commit jaywalking? So you walk across the street against the light or outside a crosswalk. That's a felony. You get convicted of it. Is it really the case that the federal government could dispossess you for the rest of your life? You can never own a gun again because you're convicted of felony jaywalking in this hypothetical state. Uh, and uh, the DOJ lawyer did something that you almost never see uh, a lawyer do. You, you never see an experienced lawyer do it. So I was quite surprised to see it. He resisted the hypothetical. Essentially, what he said to the judge was, well, that's not this case. And the judge said, I know it's a hypothetical. Could you answer the hypothetical? Uh, and it's a challenging question, right? Because the um, clear implication uh, of DOJ's position in this case is that states have um, essentially free reign uh, to designate whatever conduct they want to be a felony. And once that happens uh, under federal law, you're just automatically disabled from owning a gun. So um, the DOJ lawyer essentially gave some version of, um, well, you know, maybe one could hypothesize in some other universe at some other time in a galaxy far, far away, some outer boundary uh, of this principle, but not really for practical purposes. And so, yeah, if the state wanted to do that, um, that's just, you know, hopefully they won't, but if they do, too bad. And that sort of, that seems to tell the tale. The, the notion that a, a right that, as far as we, it's not limitless, but it is a right that the average person should be able to enjoy. And if the average person engages in conduct uh, that is trivial, that uh, is, is decided by a state legislature to be a felony, you've essentially taken away a, an enumerated right from every American who engages in that trivial activity, and that could easily be a majority of Americans. Well, that's absolutely right. And it's even worse than that because laws are generally not supposed to be arbitrary, and they're especially not supposed to be arbitrary when you're talking about you know, a fundamental constitutional right. And the fact of the matter is that increasingly the distinction between those of us who are convicted felons and those of us who are merely felons who have not been convicted is increasingly arbitrary. Uh, I am certainly a felon. I know you are. Uh, and most of our colleagues are. And that's not because we're Cato. It's just because most adult Americans are felons in the sense that um, you have engaged in conduct that constantly constitutes a felony under some law. Um, and uh, most of us, uh, and this is well documented, there's a, a, actually a whole class of, of uh, literature on, on you know, trying to calculate what percentage of Americans have committed felonies, but it's no, no real doubt that it's most of us. Um, and it's more or less happenstance which of us happen to have been convicted of one or more of the felonies we've committed and which of us have not. And so this idea that we're going to dispossess people um, who happen to have been convicted of one of the felonies they committed while allowing all the other Americans who have committed felonies but don't happen to have been convicted um, to continue exercising their Second Amendment right, I think is is very close to arbitrary, if not actually arbitrary. And, and to the extent that that, uh, that distinction is uh, becoming less meaningful over time, that really does open up the ability for the government to engage in some sort of targeted activity for 
groups they don't care for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, um, if you um, uh, exercise your prerogative under state law to uh, grow one or more marijuana plants, and there are uh, a, a number of states where that's perfectly permissible under state law, you're still a felon uh, as far as the federal government is concerned. Now, in their infinite you know, um, uh, largesse, they may not have gone after you for committing that felony, but you're definitely a felon. Um, and um, even if you don't actually use uh, uh, the product uh, that you're growing. So um, it is hugely problematic. We have really trivialized, we being, we as a society have trivialized the concept of what it means to be a felon. Um, and, you know, again, there was a time when uh, somebody who'd been convicted of a felony, uh, you could you could be fairly confident that that person, at least at one point in their life, had engaged in some pretty seriously antisocial behavior um, that might give one pause about whether uh, you, you want to see that person, you know, going around armed. But in this day and age, that idea is just utterly preposterous. Uh, and the idea that someone uh, who's been convicted of a felony um, is necessarily sort of antisocial or not sufficiently responsible to own a gun um, is ludicrous. And so the question basically is going to be whether the courts will or will not catch up with reality on that point. What was the holding in the Bruin case that you've alluded to here? Yeah, Bruin was really a watershed uh, case on the Second Amendment. This came down back in June, um, and it was a challenge to New York's um, discretionary permitting system for carrying a concealed weapon. Unlike most states, New York, California, and a handful of others leave it up to the whim uh, of some local bureaucrat whether you get to exercise your right to carry a gun outside the home. Uh, most other states either don't require a license or it's a purely objective uh, framework. So uh, that discretionary permitting system was challenged. Unsurprisingly, the Supreme Court struck it down. Um, good luck trying to think of another constitutional right that your ability to exercise it depends on the whim of some local bureaucrat. So not surprising that it was struck down, but the Supreme Court went further and not only held that there's a right to carry a concealed uh, gun outside of your home, but also that the framework for assessing the constitutionality of gun regulations going forward would be much more stringent than it had been up until that point. Um, and we, I don't need to get down in the nitty gritty, but it, the Supreme Court sent a very clear signal to the lower courts that they should be um, much more uh, kind of skeptical of gun laws and apply a framework that that significantly raises the bar for the government in trying to justify uh, laws that have been challenged under the Second Amendment. Uh, and the courts have responded accordingly. Uh, between uh, the time when Heller was decided in 2008 and the Bruin case in 2022, about 90 or 95 percent of all challenges to gun laws failed. So the courts were were upholding nearly everything. And and I wouldn't say that it's exactly flipped around now, but I would say that at least 50% of challenges to gun laws after Bruin have been successful and they're falling by the wayside. So um, it's uh, stay tuned to see how things shake out. But the Supreme Court has sent a very clear signal that the Second Amendment will no longer uh, be treated as a kind of a second class right. And it will no longer allow lower courts to simply rubber stamp uh, government uh, regulation of people's gun rights. Um, we got a long way to go before we see how that shakes out, but we're in a definitely in a, in a much different place than we were uh, nine months ago. Clark Neely is Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.